You do it all the time. You leave the dishes in or by the sink. You walk by a pile of laundry without starting a load. You leave the overflowing garbage in the can instead of just taking it out. Or maybe you're the one constantly nagging your partner to stop doing those things and help out a little. These seemingly small annoyances may be more than a little irritating. And unless you take the advice our guest has for you today, they may be a sign of deeper issues in your relationship that may become the reason your marriage ends. Coming up today on The Fit Mess. Sometimes it has nothing to do with us personally, but we as the romantic partner should be effective in you're not alone in the shit thing that you're dealing with. Like they should be able to trust us to do that. I think in order for the relationship have the requisite amount of safety and trust to go the distance. That is Matthew Frey. He is a relationship coach and a writer who leans on the lessons of his failed marriage and divorce to help others avoid making the same mistakes he did. Today, we'll talk with him about the lessons he shares in his new book called This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. But first, I'm Jeremy. And I'm Zach. We've got a bunch of coaching certifications to hang on our walls. But really, we're two guys who got sick of our own shit, and we made changes to have healthier, happier, more meaningful lives. And each week, we talk to world-class experts for advice to help you do the same. And this episode, Zach, comes at a challenging time in your life. Well, it's not so challenging now as it was nearly six months ago, I think, is when I first made the phone call to you that my own marriage was ending. That was a a tough call to take. And, uh, you know, and... Look, we, we get vulnerable here. We, we share the, the struggles and the pains and all the, the bumps and bruises and, and all that. This is a very personal one. So I, I imagine there's some lines you don't want to cross and some things that you want to withhold. But can you share a little bit about sort of how you learned that, that it was over? And, and I guess, were you surprised? Did, did you know it was coming? I did. I wasn't surprised. And it had been coming for a while. And look, my My ex and I had been together for 20 years, which is just crazy to think that. And we were a good fit 20 years ago. We were a good fit 10 years ago and people grow, people change. And you know what? It honestly, we're still friends. We're still good friends, but the spark really disappeared maybe four or five years ago. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't surprising. We have a kid together. So we really tried to make it work for her. But at the end of the day, it was just not right for either of us. So we mutually agreed that we were going to go our separate ways and we were both okay with it. Like, you know, there, there's, there's sadness and anger to the ending of any relationship, but you know, at the same time, we, we knew it was coming and we accepted that. There was a mourning process for you, a grieving process that you described to me that I don't think I've ever heard anyone do in the way that you did. Like you, you (laughs) literally dedicated a few days to just crying the shit out of it to, to process it. Can, I mean, are are you okay with talking about that? I I thought that was a really interesting uh, thing that that you did to to sort of deal with this. Yeah. Once, once we realized that it was over and like, it was like, we made the decision that it was going to happen. Like I felt the grief coming on Mm -hmm. and I knew that I just, I had 42 years of training from my dad and other guys in society to just swallow that and, and not do anything about it and, and pretend like everything was normal. Mm-hmm. But I decided to embrace it, mm-hmm. all of it, and feel it and, and just let it go. And I literally like grieved for three days, really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Like 
it was a bad three days, but like at the end of the third day, like magically I was like, okay, and I'm done. It was. <laughs> that, I mean, that, that's amazing, but it also sounds a little robotic. I mean, the fact that, <laughs> that a 20 year relationship can end, you cry for three days and you're okay. I, I'm, and to be clear, like I'm not fully okay, right, but it was like, you know, like it, I brought the emotions in, mm-hmm. I didn't deny them. I processed them. And and that's the journey I've been on over the last 20 years with my own mental health is to be able to recognize my emotions, process them in a healthy way so that they don't end up burning me later. Yeah. And this was 20 years of practice of that. Right. And it was just three days of, of really hard grief. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like I was, I was upset. <laughs> yeah. But at the end of it, I was like, okay. I let them all flow. And, and, right. and the only thing I can describe it as is, you know, if you ever see two ducks get into a fight, like they fight <laughs> right, really, really hard. And then they both walk away and they both have that shake to like really, <laughs> to like get rid of all the tension. Yeah. And then they, and then they're like, Oh, Hey, what's a up, duck man? fight. And they're fine. A duck and they're fight. fine. They're like maybe a little hungry, but, <laughs> but they're fine. And that's kind of what it felt like where I just, I dove in I went to the uncomfortable spot and I felt them and I processed them and I dug into why I felt that way. Yeah. And at the end of the day, it was, I feel this way because my normal is going away. Right. Right. The relationship was over. The spark was gone. There was no reason to stay. Mm-hmm. And that, that really helped me like at the end of it, realize this is the right decision. Yes. I'm sad about it. And for, certain reasons, but there's so much more to be happy about. Right. So it's, it's not like you just suddenly were like, all right, I'm putting on my dancing shoes. It's day three, but it just made it a little bit easier to. Yeah. And like I say, it was, it was three days because that's just like the moment when I was like, oh, okay. I, yeah. I feel like I'm done. Right. I didn't go into it saying I'm going to do this for three right. days. I'm going to lock myself in a closet for three days, just water, no lights. Yeah. No, if yeah. it was a week, it was a week. If it was two months, like it was two months. Like right. I just. I just committed to myself that I wasn't going to deny the feelings yeah. and try and bury them down and act like everything was fine. Yeah. That, that is a powerful lesson that, uh, you know, the more you just allow yourself to feel that stuff, the less that it sort of hangs around and, and nags you for, for a long time. I will say that this has probably been the most challenging 12 months of my entire life. I don't know if we talked about it on the show, but like last August, I quit my job mm-hmm. without having anything lined up yeah. and then quit my marriage six months later. So like the two things in your life, like the two that you are, I, right. The things you identify with right? biggest things I walked away from with like no plan yeah, and totally different person now than I was 12 months ago. Yeah. It's amazing. We're going to get into the lessons from our guest, Matthew Frey. He's going to share some things that can help you avoid having a relationship come to an end like this. Before we do, we sort of alluded to it at the beginning, the the little things, the death by a thousand cuts, the things that sort of add up over time. Did that play a part in what happened with you guys with just sort of those those little transgressions, those little things that just over time sort of wear away at the relationship? It did, but only I think after the spark left. Okay. In my mind, when I love someone, whether it's a wife, a friend, a you know, a sibling or whatever, when I love someone, I'm going to be annoyed by little things, but I'm going to look past them. Mm -hmm. Right. Because like the love is so much more important to me and it's, it's so much more powerful and I'm just going to choose not to be annoyed by those little things. Right. 
in my situation, once the spark was gone and we really just became roommates, Mm -hmm. then those little things started piling up. And I think that's where the thing that was left right next to the garbage instead of in the garbage or right next to the sink instead of in the sink or, you know, the clutter or something like that's when that stuff really started to add up. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, on a Friday night when I'm tired and there's dishes next to the sink and garbage next to the garbage and Mm -hmm. there's shit all over the countertop. (laughs) You lose your, you lose your cool. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, so how do you keep those things from, from weighing down a marriage and, and, or or any relationship and and adding that strain to it? We're going to find out from our guest in just a minute, but before we do that, we want to let you know about our brand new coaching program. We're calling it the fit mess method. It's for people who hear the kinds of conversations we have here each week and, and just wish that they had a way to get more help with the issues that we talk about. We've been there. We wanted to make big changes in the way we lived our lives. We had each other, and we created a system of small steps we took to get where we are now. That's what this coaching is designed to help you do, too. We're opening this up to a small group of people who want to collaborate and help each other grow. We'd love to meet with you and find out how we can help you to finally pursue those goals that have been just out of reach for too long. You can find the link to learn more about that at our website, thefitmess.com. I know I wish that I had a group that I could have talked to similar to what we're doing with the fit mess method while I was going through a lot of my changes. So while you're thinking about joining that mastermind, let's move on to our guest. Our guest today is Matthew Frey. He's a relationship coach and writer who leans on the lessons of his failed marriage and divorce to help others avoid making the same mistakes he did. We really just started off by asking him about his own failed marriage. My marriage ended in 2013, sort of like painfully and unceremoniously. And it was, I mean, it was awful. I was having like a really hard time for 12 to 18 months afterward. I was like, I don't want to feel like this, like ever again. So I needed to, I needed to start doing the work to figure out whatever I could learn to like protect my future self from a repeat scenario. And Mm -hmm. the math result of that ended up being eight and a half years of blogging which grew into a coaching business about three years ago. And then eventually I got some attention from some media and it, when the New York times like did a feature on me at the beginning of the pandemic, that's when things really started to happen. And I was given the opportunity to write this book. And so here we are, but basically my marriage has been ended for almost the exact same amount of time we were married. We were together 12 years, married for nine. And so it's, it's so interesting to view it through the prism of, from a timing perspective, we've now been apart almost as long as we were married. And I think that's like a really interesting sort of thing to like feel as we, as we say here, it's, it's, it's crazy how fast time goes. For sure. For that 12 years, obviously marriages don't end overnight. How long did it take for you to realize, I guess, how long did it feel like it was over before it was over? about 18 months on the nose. We lost her father out of nowhere one night. And that was what I, what I held responsible for the end of our marriage back then mm-hmm. in the early days. That was sort of the trigger point. And I spent about 18 months in the guest room. You know, a few months later, she mentioned something at dinner about being a little uncertain about me and the marriage. And instead of going to work, trying to figure out why she was concerned about our sustainability, I made it completely about me and pouted and said, well, you don't know if you want to be married, then I guess I'm more committed to this than you are. And then I went and slept in the guest room like an asshole and uh, kept waiting to like have things magically get better, but that's not how it works. 
And then finally, you know, 18 months later, she'd had enough and she's like, I'm, I'm out. And then that, that, I guess I didn't think that was going to happen. I kept waiting for like the mending to take place. And I thought maybe if enough time went by, it would, it never did. She left. It hurt a lot. I had to figure out why. And then it's very slowly, I feel like I've gotten a little bit better each year at understanding how I, a lot of people accidentally do things in their blind spots that inadvertently harm their relationships, which is the premise of my work, that good people accidentally harm their relationships and they don't necessarily realize it. And I find that to be a dangerous combination because I don't want good people to be like, why the hell is my marriage ending when yeah. they maybe could have done something proactively about it. Sure. But you got to know first. I mean, you have to be aware that there's something you can do. Yeah. So I was going to phrase this in the form of a, a little bit of a joke, but I wanted to say there's nothing that I could possibly do or habits that I have that would annoy other people, right? <laughs> nothing, right? There's nothing, but that's, that's not true. That's what you're talking about, right? There's things that I'm doing every single day that I have just no awareness or bothering other people, right? Yes. And I, and I, and I think that's fine with like your social crew and with your coworkers and maybe with your family of origin, I think you can do that and have successful relationships out in the world. But that exact dynamic will erode trust within a committed partnership like marriage. And then, and then that's the problem. And so I, I think a lot of us do this and we think our wives or girlfriends or romantic partners, whoever are like unfairly picking on us because everybody else likes us. Everybody else I have a great relationship with. Everybody else says I'm a good guy. And you're the person, the person I sacrifice the most for, love the most, promise the rest of my life to. You're the one that's going to tell me I'm like the bad guy and I'm, you know, you're not happy with how I show up. I, I just was really put out by that. Mm -hmm. But I just, I just think there's a way to reverse engineer all this stuff in a really healthy way. I made everything about me. And when we stop making everything about ourselves, it really helped in relationships. It's interesting you bring up the two different, well, I guess multiple kinds of relationships that we have. Uh, just the other day, my wife was sort of joking when she said, you know, you can, you can kind of mope around the house and, and be kind of angry and, and, and mad and stuff. And then I hear you go upstairs and do your podcast and it's blah, 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 blah. You're, you're Mr. Entertaining and, and, you know, you're on it. And it's it just it's interesting to me how we do even in our marriage we we wear different hats with different people at home maybe we get a little too comfortable and feel like we can we can just be us and and be down and whatever but when we're in a more professional environment or with our friends maybe we have to wear the the hat that says I'm I'm good and everything's fine and and maybe that's is there a disconnect there in in sort of the roles we play in those relationships and that's why maybe our, our marriages are more vulnerable to collapse than those other relationships? I think so. I think there's science behind it too. And I can't, and I'm so embarrassed that I'm not savvy enough to like recall it off the top of my head. But work has been done in this regard. And there's like social science and psychological validity to the idea that we are more thoughtful with strangers, more sensitive mm -hmm. to the needs of people that we don't spend all of our time with than we are to the people we do spend all of the time with. It's not that we're necessarily unkind to the people that we live with. It's that I think we're just more mentally careful with other people than we are with 
our spouses and our children and growing up with our parents and our siblings. And I wish, I'm, I'm going to forgive me for not like remembering like that there's a name for it, mm -hmm. but it's, it's there. And yeah, I once wrote a blog post that was like, I was, she divorced me. I, I'm sort of quote unquote famous for she divorced me because I left dishes by the sink. I wrote another one called she divorced me because I was nicer to strangers than I was to her. And that's when I learned that research. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I just think we, I think we take everything for granted that becomes white noise in our lives. I mean, everything, mm -hmm. our, 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 our parents, our breathing, our eyesight, the use of our arms and legs. So our children, to a certain extent, we take for granted that they're going to be here tomorrow. And then in that comfort, sometimes we do or don't do things that aren't optimum for the quality of our relationship. And I think all of us wish we did better, but we're people and it's hard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, you, you brought it up. One of the things I wanted to ask you about was that blog post of she divorced me because I left dishes by the sink. And that, that one kind of hit me hard because I am very regularly taking something that was placed next to the sink, putting it in the sink, something that was put on the counter right by the garbage and putting it in the garbage. Can you just elaborate a little more on, on that blog post and what it meant? Yes. I'm glad you pointed it out. And it, so it's not always in a male female relationship, a husband doing this to a wife. It can be anybody, including mm -hmm. my son leaving cliff bar wrappers all over the couch this morning. Things like this happen all the time. But in, in the context of she divorced me because I left dishes by the sink, what I think it does is it describes the scenario in which my wife says, this thing matters to me. This is dish being here. I don't like it. And I disagreed that it was as important as she was making it out to me. I didn't think the dish mattered. And I thought it was cool as an adult and that my opinion about the dish not mattering was equally valid to her opinion that the dish did matter. And I wanted to debate the merits of the dish. And what I've come to understand years later is that it was never really about that dish and that my only quote unquote crime or sin in the relationship was not just this one dish incident. What happened was I frequently in word and action demonstrated that I didn't value or respect the things my wife experienced as bad or negative or sad or harmful or scary or whatever. I, I, I didn't do that. I didn't respect it. I, I didn't calculate for when my wife walks into the kitchen, she sees that glass there, it will be a signal to her that I either knew it would upset her and I didn't care and I put it there anyway, or I didn't even think about her at all. And I just mm -hmm. thoughtlessly put it there without even doing the work of going through the process of how will she experience this? You can apply that to toilet seats and bathroom, like a toothpaste spittle on the mirror and laundry on the floor of the bedroom and, and tons of shared domestic, like household responsibilities where people frequently feel disrespected or frustrated by the actions or inactions of the person that they live with. And it's certainly, again, not always men and male, female relationships who are the culprits, but it, it often is. I think it strongly correlates. I, I don't want to put too fine a point on the uh, labor issues in, in the home, but there, I'm in a lot of Facebook groups with men and many of them who are having marriage troubles, I'll see them describe how the changes they'll make to try and save the marriage. 
I've been doing the dishes. I've been doing the laundry. I've been taking the kids to school. I've been doing all these things. And she still doesn't give me affection, respect me, love me, whatever the thing is that they're after. And I think that that kind of speaks to one of the concepts you talk about, about uh, radical responsibility, is it's more, it's more than just doing what will please them. It's about showing up fully in the relationship, right? I mean, are, are they completely missing the boat by going, here's my, here's my honey-do list, and as long as I check it off, then our marriage is going to be just fine. Yeah, I think so. I think there's two important ideas there. And the first one that I like to talk about is, I don't know if you guys remember from high school or university psychology classes, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but it's frequently like demonstrated in pyramid form. And there's like right, five levels of human need. First one's basic need, air, food, water, shelter. The second one is safety that we need. And, and the idea of Maslow's pyramid is we must satisfy the conditions of the levels of the pyramid and then we like graduate to the next level. And so once we graduate, once we satisfy safety, then we move up to like the esteem level, belonging level. That means like family, friends, connectivity, going out and doing stuff. And I think in romantic relationship terms, that means physical intimacy, date nights, going to, to parties and events together as a couple and, and having fun and doing all the things that we did when we like first started dating. All of the stuff that, you know, these guys in like the dead marriage crave. And he hears her say, you don't contribute and things like that. And he, he thinks he can like make up for it. Well, the problem is safety has been eroded in the relationship and no amount of like to-do list things, no amount of, I think you're very pretty. I want to sleep with you. I want to do all these things gets to restore safety and trust in the relationship. And it's not even, it's not even him opting out of performing tasks that does it, which is what I thought in my relationship. I made my wife responsible for being the manager of the tasks. So I was happy to do things. That's not actually not true. I still bucked and whined and wanted to watch <laughs> sports center, you know, on Saturday morning instead of clean the house. But it, most, most of the time I would gladly do a thing if she asked me to do it or, or begrudgingly at worst, I would do the thing. And that's not usually what our partners crave. What our partners usually crave is I've got this, and I'm, this is me evoking average wife and mother in my world. I've got this invisible to-do list of all of the things that I think about and manage. And they are my children's needs and they are my household needs. And they're often my romantic partner's needs, including my own. And I'm constantly juggling all of them. And there's all these external things. Maybe my mom has a, a test at the hospital that we're all a little bit worried about that we're going to get results from two days from now. Maybe I have a big presentation at work on Friday. Maybe the kids have extracurricular activities, so they need special clothes washed or special lunches packed or whatever. There's all these things all the time. And usually these things fall to wives and mothers and relationships and the husbands or boyfriends or whoever have opted out, not because of this like refusal to participate, but this sort of like comfortable obliviousness about it. And so Doing things at the last minute after years of trust erosion have gone on in the relationship in no way restore trust and communicate to our wives that we're going to participate effectively in like in this thing moving forward. What hurts is the absence of participation in that. The average wife and mother wants to you to notice that she's got all this shit that she's managing, that she's carrying around. And it's a lot less about the math of like, like checking like the tasks off the list. And it's a lot more about this nuanced idea of I'm aware that you manage all of these things. 
and you've been doing it alone. And I do not want you to feel like what you do and carry and contribute is invisible. I think people want to be seen. They want to know that their contributions matter. And I think the average stressed out wife and mother wants to feel as if her adult pro partner who promised to love and, and honor her all the days of her lives will be there to help carry the heavy things. And the invisible load of childcare and household management and all of the bonus things that pop up in human life, those can get very heavy, just depending on the math of each individual's lives, depending on health, depending on number of children, depending on financial security. It, it just, it varies so much from couple to couple, but thematically it's always the same. It's, can we be tuned in to what our partner's carrying and then participate in that? Most of us don't. I just, I didn't even pay attention. I didn't even think about it. It wasn't on my radar at all. You mentioned you were in the guest room waiting for the marriage to heal, right? Knowing what you know now and, and working with clients and helping them through the situation. So being cognizant of, of the other side is important, but what would you do differently? How would you approach it? How do you suggest to people approaching, making that change? Because like you said, just doing the dishes or just starting to take active action in some of the chores isn't really the full solution. So what would you do differently? And what do you advise people to do differently? Well, I don't, it, please trust that this answer applies to very specifically the question you asked. But I'll answer it by saying, this is what I talk to every client about. Mm -hmm. In my coaching work, we focus on two habits. And, and these two habits are what I, I would have done when my wife said, hey, I'm a little unsure about this marriage. I'm a little unsure about you. I'm, I'm thinking about maybe like we shouldn't be married anymore. Like this is how I would have tried to restore trust in the relationship. And this is what I talk to clients about. Two habits. And I like to use the word habit because I don't think these are awful men doing awful things. I don't think there's some character defect that men have to like, that they're, that they're deficient and they need to like become good enough. I just think a lot of guys in their blind spots fail to calculate for the way other people experience what they do or don't do, what they say or don't say. Mm -hmm. I think it shows up in two habits. And the first one is validation. And so my wife would come to me and she would say, Matt, something's wrong. And I would routinely respond to her in a way that I calculated to be disagreement, but she experienced as invalidation. And validation equals trust erosion in relationships. It's just a paper cut and it'll happen. You can make it five, seven, 10, 15 years invalidating people all the time, but it's, it's a slow bleed. And, and it's really bad, I think, when we do it on autopilot is the number one thing I ask people to work on. So my wife would come to me and say, Matt, this thing happened, it hurt, something's wrong. And I would, the first version of invalidating my wife would be to disagree that the thing she said happened, happened. So my premise is your feelings are not relevant because they're based on something that isn't even real. I mm -hmm. disagree with what you said occurred, version one. Version two, my wife would come to me and say, Matt, something's wrong. I, I feel bad. This thing happened and I hurt. And I would, at this time, I would agree that the thing happened, but I would disagree that her emotional reaction to it was fair or healthy or appropriate. So this time, instead of trying to correct her brain, trying to correct her feelings, trying to encourage her to feel about it more how I feel about it, problem solved. Version three is my wife would come to me and say, Matt, this thing happened. I feel bad about it. This time it's like something I did or didn't do. And I want to explain or justify or defend myself. 
feeling as if, if she understands what my beliefs were, my, what my intentions were, the situation I was dealing with, she would understand that I wasn't like out to get her. But all three of these response patterns invalidate, they, they prioritize our mental and emotional experiences over our partner's mental and emotional experiences. And what I ultimately realized is 100% of the time, my wife came to me to try to communicate something was wrong and recruit me to understand it and like help her be part of the bad thing not existing in our marriage moving forward. If I didn't agree with some aspect of what she was saying, if I, if I felt as if she was putting too much responsibility on me, I would disagree, right? Like intellectually, I would disagree emotionally that her feelings are wrong or I would simply defend myself implying that I will keep doing what I want to do independent of your inconvenient feelings about it. And I think that, and it, it truly wasn't quite as gross and, and mean as that might've sounded just now. It's just kind of the way that I remember it, but that this nasty habit of inadvertently invalidating people when we disagree with them, I think is an awful habit. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if we have time to like talk about the prescription for that. Please. Yeah. Yeah. I think okay. Because well, a lot of guys are like, Matt, are you advocating agreeing with your wife when you don't agree with her? Because the problem is on autopilot, I'm responding in, in an honest way with my wife. I don't agree with her. And I'm like, okay, I think that you might be conflating the idea of validating an agreement. And I get it because it was hard. And I did it every day until six or seven years ago also. And I'm like, consider this thought exercise. My son wakes up in the middle of the night, freaking out hysterically because he's afraid of a monster under his bed. He's 13 now, so he wouldn't do this. But when he was four, he might. I run up to his room. I open the door. I find out that what's wrong, the reason he's afraid and the reason he's freaking out is because he thinks it's a monster under the bed. And on my default setting back then, 10 years ago, the way I'm going to try to solve the problem is to try to sell him on the idea that he believes something that isn't real and that he shouldn't think and feel the things and do what he's doing right now because it's based on a faulty premise to begin with. There's no monster under the bed. So you don't need to feel afraid. You don't need to cry. You know, toughen up, be my big boy, go to sleep. I don't have time for invisible monsters right now. And I leave. And I just would like to point out that in that scenario, I'm technically correct. There isn't a monster under the bed. So I win the battle of ideas. I love my son. He's my favorite human on earth. And I just, he's my favorite. And I would never try to hurt him. Point three, I would never intentionally do a thing that would hurt my son, like mindfully. But I, I would argue that the math result of showing up in this way as dad in this scenario, he's alone in the dark, still afraid, still crying. Nothing got better. He learned that dad, if dad doesn't agree that the thing I'm dealing with is important or scary or hurtful, he implies that I'm stupid, weak, crazy, and then he abandons me literally or metaphorically to cry alone in the dark. So even if dad loves me, it hurts to try to like have dad be part of the solution to whatever I'm dealing with right now. And I think we lose trust when that's how we show up in relationships. Like, I think that child won't trust me, won't, won't open up to me, won't invite me to be part of his life when things are going on later in life. Kids off from drugs, if he experiences bullying, if he's having problems with a romantic partner or whatever. I think there's another way to show up for people. And it doesn't involve agreeing that there's a monster under the bed. It doesn't involve agreeing that he should be feeling fear or crying right now. And it's simply, I go up there. I see that my son's afraid. He says, this is a monster under the bed. I know there's no monster. Under the bed. But instead of getting hung up on that detail and try to like convince him, he's silly for thinking and feeling what he's thinking and feeling. I'm going to care 
that my son is experiencing fear right now. So I'm going to hug the kid and I'm going to be like, dude, I'm so sorry that like you're afraid right now. I don't think there's a monster under the bed, but I've felt fear before and it's an awful thing. I don't want you to have to like experience that. I'm, I'm really sorry. Let's turn the light on. Let's look under the bed. Let's make sure there's no monster. And I think the really critical idea and the one that applies most closely to our adult relationships is, buddy, when life is hard, you can always call mom. You can always call dad. We're going to show up for you. We might not be able to fix what's wrong, but you never have to feel alone while you're battling whatever it is that you're battling, while you're dealing with whatever hardships going on in your life. We might not be able to make that go away, but we're always going to be next to you if you want us to be. And I, I, I think in our adult relationships, when our partners are communicating something's wrong, I just the math result should not be us trying to win the battle of ideas if we honestly disagree with something intellectually or emotionally they're experiencing. I just want them to know, I give a shit that you hurt. I want to understand why, because you can trust me to participate effectively moving forward and being mindful of how this type of situation adversely affects you. And I want you to know you can count on me. And, and again, sometimes it has nothing to do with us personally, but we as the romantic partner should be effective in you're not alone in the shit thing that you're dealing with. Like they should be able to trust us to do that. I think in order for the relationship to have the requisite amount of safety and trust to go the distance, my wife could not trust me to do that. I can hear guys hearing that and going, yeah, when, when there's an external thing, the, the boss at work is a jerk, whatever the thing, but what about when the laser beams are focused right on you and, and you are the asshole, you it's did the hurt. thing wrong. How do you, how do you not just immediately throw up the shields and go, bullshit, you're so wrong. And here's why. And I mean, it's just so tempting when you get attacked yeah. to just lash back out. How do you, how yes, do you sir. find that space? I mean, the way the, the, the mental hoops I jump through are if I focus on whether or not there's a monster under the bed and I try to convince him there isn't one, I erode trust in my relationship. I, I make the goal increasing trust in the relationship over winning the, the battle of ideas. So what I want to do is I want the math result of the conversation I'm having with my wife or whoever right now, I want the math result to be trust improves that, that like our relationship grows. The sign of an amazing relationship is somebody gets to communicate something's wrong. And then the other person participates effectively in saying, if I don't understand, I want to, and you can count on me to like be your partner and having that, you know, like crap thing not happen anymore in the future, or at least try to the best of my ability. If we're doing the second habit in my work, which we haven't got to yet, in theory, we would, we would not be in the situation that you're describing. Because there's one other habit we haven't talked about, and it would, okay. it would preemptively prevent that from happening. But in an ideal world, somebody says, you did something and it sucked for me. If I'm being my best self, I'm not making it about me and defending myself. I'm seeking to understand how I accidentally caused so much harm mm -hmm. so that I can communicate. I get it. And I need you to be able to trust me that that's not going to happen again. Now that I understand what I could have done differently, you can trust me to do it. That's the difference between, I think somebody is trustworthy and somebody you can count on to just keep doubling down on. I don't really give a shit. If you hurt, I'm going to keep doing it my way, which was more or less what I did in my marriage because I thought I was right all the time, which is pathetic. <laughs> So what about habit two? Tell us. Habit two lives under the umbrella of the word consideration. And so what the average wife and mother says to me in this work is, Matt, I feel like I'm married to somebody 
who doesn't consider me and he makes decisions and the way she explains it and the way that I visualize it is like an algebraic equation. She's a variable in the math equation. My husband's a variable in the math equation. My children are variables in the math equation. On the other side of the equal sign is whatever decision I make. I'm always factoring in me, my husband and each of my kids. So it's like what to have for dinner, where to go on vacation, when to schedule appointments, you know, what clothes to buy. I'm always in, in, in decisions, large and small, thinking about how what I do and what I plan will roll downhill and impact all the people I care about. She's like, I'm married to somebody who doesn't do that. It's not that he doesn't love me. It's not that he's not a wonderful father. It's that there's sufficient evidence that many times throughout a given day, week, month, year, he made a decision that did not include me in that decision. It failed to account for me or it hurt or he did it on purpose. And so wives are left to conclude I'm either married to somebody who knows that what he does or doesn't do hurts me and he doesn't care and he just keeps doing it anyway. That's the worst case scenario. And the best case scenario is that I'm married to somebody who doesn't think about me at all. I'm married to somebody who routinely doesn't even, I don't even register in his brain as a thing to calculate for when he makes a choice throughout a given day where I always consider him and I always consider our children. And so the absence of feeling considered by our partners feels, you feel invisible and abandoned and disrespected. And that erodes safety and trust in a relationship, not trust like he's a liar or he's a cheater, but trust in the, with the idea of, can I count on this human being? Is it reliable? Is it consistent? Is it statistically likely to be a healthy, safe place for me to be a year from now or five years from now or 10 years from now? And after many years of this, a lot of people say, I'm going to have to compromise every ounce of self-esteem, self-respect, self-respect, personal values and boundaries I have in order to stay in this relationship if he doesn't or she doesn't stop doing or, or start doing these things that are hurting me. And so people will over time just say, I don't calculate this as a healthy relationship for me. I need to go. And that's how, in my estimation, good people push each other apart and, and, and a so-called good relationship erodes to one that one or both people don't want to be a part of anymore. It takes a lot of years because these things present so small in the individual moments that we're in. They don't seem like a big deal at all, but add them up over a decade and they're a big deal. I want to ask you about vulnerability because that is a big part of your book and, and what is now getting you a lot of attention. Why, why we're talking to you because of the way that you've shared this very painful experience how much do you think it would have helped to be more vulnerable in your relationship? How, how strong is vulnerability when it comes to keeping those bonds and that safety and all that uh, intact? It, it, incredibly, I think. I, I can't remember which client's wife said it to me, but I'm talking to her one time. I don't usually like work with couples. I usually work with the guy, but I will occasionally like meet with his partner and she will like share with me, you know, what's going on. And it just like kind of helps me like hone in when I'm, when I'm working with him. And she said to me, he's not honest with me. And I'm like, you mean he lies? She says, no, it's not that he lies. It's that I know he thinks things and I know he feels things, but he doesn't say them. <laughs> he doesn't tell me. I know there's something that's true and he withholds it from me. And it's not that it's like I'm suspicious and paranoid. But it's like, he's not letting me in. He's, he's not disclosing true things to me. 
therefore I can't trust them again, not in the lie way, but in the, in the reliability way. And this idea of, can I count on you? Can, you know, are you going to, is this a reliable, safe thing for me to be a part of? And so, you know, I think a lot of guys are afraid of vulnerability. I think they associate it with weakness and I've come to believe just, just totally the opposite. I spent my entire first 33, 34 years of my life pretending to be tough and stoic. All I was doing was just pretending to not hurt every time something hurt, putting on like the tough guy face. And that was a lot more cowardly than being honest about stuff that sucks. And I wish I had communicated stuff that sucks with my, or things where I was, I was often just like afraid of rejection. Like they, and there's so many things we don't say because we're afraid of judgment or afraid of rejection. And man, single people out there, like say the stuff on the second or third date, like fail fast. If you're going to fail, don't go through your whole marriage, like hiding true stuff from your spouse, like say it. And if, if she doesn't like you for who you actually are, I mean, do you want to wear a mask your whole life or do you want to be liked for like who you are is to me, the conversation to have. And I just don't think there's anything weak or effeminate about being honest about what's actually true in here and in here. Yeah. And I'm, I, I wish guys didn't feel like shamed into like hiding that stuff. Cause I don't think it's healthy for them or their relationships. In making that switch, was that something that happened overnight for you? Or was that something that took a little while? Practice? Practice big time. Yeah. I I felt so shitty after my wife left. I was so miserable. But I wasn't afraid of rejection and judgment anymore. I didn't care. So I blogged it all. And I got so accustomed to saying uncomfortably true things that we don't normally talk about in polite conversation. And... um. I had a lot of practice. So that's, it's, it's an advantage in my estimation that I had over like average human had a lot of practice making public disclosures about true things that blog readers found out about in year, you know, two of me blogging that, you know, my wife never heard about ever unless, you know, she read it. Mm-hmm. And I mean that, I don't know, I guess I wasn't ready in my twenties, early thirties to bravely share true things with my wife, which is really unfortunate. Don't marry people. You're afraid to say true things to, I think is maybe the lesson there. I'm curious about your current relationship with your ex-wife. Now that you've changed, are there regrets on either side? Is there, is there like, Oh Matt, now you've changed, you've become the guy I always wished you were. Has there been any of that? Or are you guys just on where, where are you guys now? It's more business like than that, but she's really kind. She invites me to, she invites me every year to like the in-laws Christmas gathering. She's really cool. Like, and then like if our son's birthday is having like a birthday party, like at her house or something, I mean, I'm always invited. Uh, I'm the person if they go out of town that she asks to go like check on her pets and make sure the house is okay. We live relatively close together. It's cool. I'm like, I'm really proud of it because we've come a long way because it was pretty contentious for the first probably 12 months following your marriage ending. And then, I mean, I just, I, I think the, the, the key ingredient was me learning how to accept personal responsibility. The truth is uh, this habit we talked about earlier of consideration, you still have to practice it as a divorced guy when you share children. Like I have to be considerate of schedules and of clothes for our son and of just all of these things. And 
very mindful of her calendar and mine and communicating effectively. And we do, we do a really good job. She just like yesterday was like, Hey, do you want to go to this parent thing? My son's about to enter high school next year. Do you want to go to this parent thing at the high school where you have an opportunity to talk to the parents of seniors? And it's kind of like this introductory to the high school community thing. And I'm like, absolutely. And so she and I are going to go to that together. And that's, that's not that weird, but there's nothing like romantic. It's not, she's been in a a long-term relationship for four or five years and it's good. He's, he's a good dude. Like I like to tell people it's really uncomfortable. I think for people who are married to think about their wife with somebody else. And it was extremely uncomfortable for me early, but you eventually get to the point where you're like, if you can trust a person to take care, fundamentally care for and be decent to your ex-spouse and and really most significantly your child, when you're not there to like do anything about it, that is an invaluable thing because not everybody with children in like split relationships has that. A lot of people have to stress about the wellness of their children. And I've been very blessed not to have to do that. Nice. We haven't even mentioned the name of your book, which I think is amazing amazing uh, title. So could you just tell us what the name of the book is and where people can find you and connect with you? Yes, sir. Thank you so much. The, the book is, This Is How Your Marriage Ends, A Hopeful Approach to Saving Relationships. It's pretty much everywhere books are sold, both physical brick and mortar shops and, and certainly online. And um, everything anybody would really want to know about me can be found at matthewfray.com. It's sort of my home on the internet. And thank you so much for asking. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew Frey, for joining us today. You can find links to his book and his work in the show notes for this episode at thefitmess.com. And when he talked about fights being over winning the battle of ideas, that's something that really stuck with me. So many times when we get into those those arguments, it's all just about being right. It's about winning. and, And we sort of lose sight of what's at the root of that. When you ignore how your partner feels and they're communicating to you and you don't change. You don't empathize. You don't realize where that pain is coming from. It, it, it just makes them feel like shit. And, and you don't want to make anyone else feel like shit. If you can just try and start from a place of giving a shit and trying to understand the concern first, that's such a better place to start than, yeah, but I want to be right. I say this all the time. It, in my mind, like the, this, this applies everywhere. And it's the difference between a successful, like at work, like a successful manager and a non-successful manager. Even if, like if somebody's complaining about something or airing a grievance to you, even if you don't agree and you have to make a decision that's the polar opposite of what they're asking about, if you just make sure that they know that you listened, mm-hmm. just that alone can be the game changer. But if you just blow it off, whatever it is, without really listening and understanding their concerns, it, it just adds to the fire. Yeah. And and that speaks to our second takeaway from the interview. It's not about the fucking dishes in the sink. It's about the message those dishes send, especially when your partner has shared that it's a problem, that those little annoying things you do when you don't make any effort to change them and you're just like, well, fuck it. I'm, I'm me and I'm going to be me and, you know, too bad. That's not a healthy recipe for success. So you have to really think through your actions and how they're going to affect the other people in your life. And, and like you're saying, like those those people at work that you have to go against whatever they're saying, like whatever that relationship is, when you just completely disregard whatever their pain point is, it just is such an awful place to, to start any conversation. This kind of brings us into the next point too. my own relationship. Like we tried to fix it. So like we brought these things up to each other Mm -hmm. and things still happen. So the message that sends is really, really deep. 
when you make sure somebody knows that something bothers you and they keep doing it, mm -hmm. that's a problem. It's a really big problem. And, and I think on the other side of that, and this is something that I see a lot uh, in, in various, you know, Facebook groups and things that I'm in is I see a lot of these guys that they sort of hear the message of you don't do enough around the house, you don't whatever. And they start just doing the dishes and they start just doing the laundry and they figure out where the vacuum is and how it works. They think it's the act, right? They think it's the thing that's not being done when, as, as Matthew mentioned, like it's the underlying thing. It's the fact that like trust has been broken. They feel like that, like they can't count on you. That is what's really going on. So I hope that you don't take away from this. Oh, I just need to do the dishes and everything will be fine. Oh, I just need to do the laundry and everything will be fine. Like there's some root shit you got to get to that will then hopefully make you feel like you want to participate and you want to be part of the solution and not just continue to be probably the source of the problem. All of these points really tie back to the underlying issue of making sure that you're listening to your partner and understanding what it is that they're actually trying to communicate to you. And that's a great place to stop the conversation on this episode, but don't let the conversation end there. Join us in our Facebook group where you and fellow FitMess listeners can connect for monthly challenges and accountability to reach your goals. Everyone in that group is super supportive and we'd love to see you in there. That link is also at our website, thefitmess.com, where we will be back next week with a brand new episode. Thanks for listening. See you, everyone. We know this podcast is amazing. It doesn't seem to lack anything, but we need a legal disclaimer. Prior to implementing anything discussed in this podcast, it is your responsibility to conduct your own research and consult your physician. You should assume that Jeremy and Zach don't know what they're talking about, and they're not liable for any physical or emotional issues that occur directly or indirectly from listening to this podcast.